Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Today's episode carries a lot of messages. It's about the Revolutionary War and the horrible attack on New Haven by the British back in 1779. A lot of atrocities occurred during that raid. So why did one of the British invaders get buried with honors? Our guest is an expert on this topic. West Haven native Peter Malia is the author of the book Visible Saints, the colonial history of West Haven, 1648 to 1798. And he is going to answer the question of why the officer was buried with honors. And now, a British Revolutionary War raid that bears remembering. We all know July can be hot, and so it was in the year 1779. In fact, it was 100 degrees around the 4th of July, and quite uncomfortable if you were wearing the heavy woolen uniform of a British Revolutionary War soldier. Yeah, the Revolutionary War was underway, and the city of New Haven was getting all ready to celebrate the third Independence Day in the United States. They're going to have a big parade. Well, the British had a different idea, and they thought it would be a good time to destroy New Haven. They sent 3,000 soldiers to New Haven in a naval flotilla, 1,500 landing in West Haven, 1,500 landing in East Haven, and all of them converging together on the New Haven Green so they'd have 3,000 in downtown New Haven. Well, the events of those 36 hours would involve students from Yale University, a future vice president of the country, and a very big response from the militia surrounding the New Haven area. Peter Melia is a West Haven native, and he has studied this British raid on New Haven in incredibly great detail. In fact, he's written an award-winning book on it, Visible Saints, the Colonial History of West Haven, 1648 to 1798. Now, he says the British landing party came ashore at Savant Rock. That's a famous and very visible landmark along the Connecticut shoreline. For the uninitiated who don't know this area, explain Savin Rock and a little bit about its history. It's a protrudence into Long Island Sound. It's a stone. It has served as an observation point from the days of the Native Americans that used to use it to signal ships to come onshore. In the case of the American Revolution, it became a stop for the militia watch as they patrolled the shoreline. We, West Haven has the longest shoreline in Connecticut. I did not know that. It's over three miles long, which was notorious. Long Island Sound was like a highway for British shipping in that period because it was the only way to get into New York and out of New York City. So everything that went or arrived passed by. The war had started in 1775. By 1779, people were a little bit lax in the fact that, okay, another British fleet is offshore, and nothing would ever happen. You tell this story of a 19-year-old kid who was standing on Savin Rock on patrol that night, uh, Mr. Painter. What did he do, and what did he see, and what did he try to do? Tom Painter was on watch that night because he was part of the militia unit that was assigned to patrol that part of town. West Haven was a parish within this, the town of New Haven, and Painter happened to live there with his uncle. When he saw the ships coming, they were spotted at around midnight. He alerted his uncle, and they said, we're going to bed, Tom. He got nervous because they dropped anchor, and as the day progressed, around 3 o'clock in the morning, they, they sailed closer into the harbor, and then he knew there was going to be trouble. 
Tom went out and dug a hole and buried all his goods and then ran back to the marsh with five other gentlemen who were in the militia, and they waited to see what would happen. Yeah, then what happened? So they ended up coming right on shore. And What did uh, Painter try to do with his five colleagues? Foolishly, he tried to fight them off. At 4.30, a cannon sounded off the main ship. Transport vessels dropped into the ocean. They rowed ashore, and the boats, they seat around 50 men. Uh, standing maybe 75. So they accumulated quickly. Painter took uh, pot shots at them along with his buddies and then realized they're going to fire back. And he hightailed it into the reeds and they returned fire and fired on him for at least 100 yards. And he said he was lucky to get away. He heard the, the whiz of musket balls going by his head and thanked the Lord that he wasn't hit. And we know this because of his diary. He wrote a diary like a lot of vets of the American Revolution. The U.S. Congress passed a pension law in the 1830s, but you had to prove that you were in the war. There were a lot of memoirs and autobiographies written in the early 1830s by former vets. But his is much more comprehensive, and it, was, it covers more than just that battle. There was a public meeting the night before, which is July 4th. Lo and behold, they were planning a parade to be held the very next day in New Haven. So the town was full of visitors, and they were planning a line of march of how to celebrate the third anniversary of the United States. They ended up celebrating it quite differently than they had planned. They were all well aware by 11 o'clock p.m. that the British fleet was offshore. It could be seen, and so there was general panic in downtown New Haven. People were getting out of town as fast as they could riding up to West Rock, just out of the uh, shoreline vicinity, because they knew that was their target. So they come up to the West Haven Green, and what happens then? They basically decamp and give the troops who had marched up from the beach to the Green, which is about two miles, uh, a rest, because they were awaiting the other side of the attack into East Haven, to be coordinated. They themselves were waiting for a cannon shot to be fired, so they knew they would launch their main attack on New Haven. But the march up from the beach to the green wasn't as easy as they thought. Uh, It was tough to keep the troops in line. They had been cooped up on their transport vessels for over two days in the steaming heat. The British troops and the German mercenaries were not known for their great discipline. So they were stragglers, and they were people who were breaking into other homes, harassing the locals and stealing things. And, of course, there were the locals taking pot shots at them. So it took them a while to get to the green. They're hearing stories all along the way from the loyalists in town who were helping them out. You know, they hear a couple of stories, and one of them is about the minister of the Congregational Church. Tell me this part of the story. The minister of the church, his name was Noah Williston. He was a Yale graduate. He lived directly across the way from the church, and lo and behold, the minister made an appearance. Unfortunate for him, British decided to, let's go have some fun. And they raced after him, some of the troopers, and in his haste to get away, he tried to hurdle a fence, got his boot caught in the fence, fell, and broke his leg, and then was at the mercy of the troops, who dragged him back by his collar, poking at him with bayonets, and threatening to hang him from the tree in the green. Now, there's a guy who we have to introduce at this point, because this is why we're sitting here today to talk about this, a gentleman named William Campbell. Guy in his mid-30s, a Scotsman, family man, had family back home, and had 
worked his way up without getting into detail into a position where he was more or less an administrative assistant to the senior brass of the British military. He hears this commotion. First of all, tell me about that. What did he do and, and what did he intervene to do that day? He was having breakfast with the other officer staff in a home kitty corner to the church on the green. He heard the commotion of the troops on the green and being the junior officer, he was asked to go investigate. He went outside and immediately approached the troopers and asked them to release the minister and said to, was overheard saying, we're here to attack the military, not civilians. And he had the minister carried back to the parsonage. And then he asked for the regimental surgeon to come set the minister's leg. And then he posted a guard that stood at the door of the parsonage until the British left the green. There's a great piece of William Campbell's personal history that may come into play here in terms of something he witnessed growing up that happened to his family in Scotland, also involving the British. Tell us about that. He had a, a strong empathy towards civilians. Being a Scotsman uh, from the Highlands, his family was well known as chieftains, the Campbell family, and consequently they were leaders in what was known as the Battle of Culloden. That was the... Uh, attempt on the behalf of the Scottish people to restore the Catholic monarch to the crown in England. They lost the Battle of Culloden. It was a horrendous loss, and the British didn't stop there. They decided to undertake over the next several days a massacre, and they murdered hundreds of young people. Anyone who, of fighting age died. Campbell was four years old. His father was one of the major chieftains. He apparently lived and he went in hiding and surfaced later. But Campbell, from that point on, realized that, you know, this shouldn't be happening to, you know, innocent people. So now this has happened, and now the, the British are still having to get across the West River into New Haven to join up with their colleagues who are at the New Haven Green, and they're still waiting for that cannon shot. They now start to move north and they're harassed. Tell us uh, what happened in that part of the chapter. They're harassed by the local militia that had been raised in New Haven and its leader, James Hillhouse, was at the point of a group of Yale students who decided to hide themselves behind trees and bushes and take pot shots at the British just to hold them up to give some of the other townsmen time to tear up the bridge, the only bridge, that led over the West River into downtown New Haven. Meanwhile, there was another visiting dignitary by the name of Aaron Burr, who was a very young man at the time in his early 20s, who was recuperating from battle fatigue. I believe it was from the battles of New Jersey. But he was visiting his relatives in New Haven, and he volunteered to lead them against the British and led about 150 other militia and students from Yale to take up a position where he thought was the best place to be to fend them off from taking over the bridge. And that is a place in Allentown, Connecticut, called Milford Hill. It's about a 300-foot precipice that the British would have to march up. On one side of the bridge were three cannons staring down the British, and then on the hill, 150 Americans posed behind a stone wall. So they take down that bridge and take that out as an option for the British. And that infuriated the leading officer, whose name was Major General Garth. He now 
had to march his army an extra three miles into New Haven, and he was not happy about it. Now, William Campbell is told he has to figure out what the problem is. His job in action was to oversee the guards, the flanking guards, of which he was a member, a Scott guard. And the flanking guards were meant to flush out all of the perpetrators who were hiding behind trees and weeds. And that was happening in Allentown. And it's written in the British manuals that the person in charge of the flanking unit is supposed to have lay eyes on what's happening. And he spurred his horse to go up the hill to find out because, number one, it's the best place to get a view of New Haven and the bridge. And number two, he could find out if the rebels had left that stone wall. And so what ends up happening to him, some people spot him up there on his horse, and he's over six feet tall and standing high on the horse? He's a big target, all dressed in red. I would figure he's over nine feet tall on the horse. So he'd be a hard target to miss. Whether he was shot by one American or several is a matter of debate, but there is no debate that he was shot and, and, and he was carried across the street mortally wounded. Here's a guy who has just you know, saved the minister's life. He now is mortally wounded the same day. The British go up, and let's finish this part of the story. They finally meet the 3,000 soldiers in New Haven, and they uh, sack and pillage the place pretty well. They did something that they did two years before in 1777 when they went to Danbury. They found the rum stash and drank heavily, and I understand they did the same thing in New Haven and ended up with a hangover the next morning as they woke up to find themselves surrounded on three sides. The rum stash wasn't hard to find. The local merchants decided if we're going to spare the town from being burned, let's roll the rum out. So they left the barrels available on the street for the soldiers to partake. The soldiers were encamped on the New Haven Green, and they were allowed to kind of wander around for the next several hours. General Tryon, who was the major general who was leading the attack on New Haven, was infuriated by the fact that some rebels were taking pot shots at his officers. He felt that that merited the city to be burned, and as a result, people's lives were not spared. Uh, numbers of people who were civilians in the street were accosted, stabbed to death. One gentleman had his tongue cut out. I mean, the atrocities went on and on. Yet they did not actually burn the city. They did burn the wharf and uh, created, obviously, other damage. By the end of the day, the surrounding militias had raised numbers far in excess of the 3,000. They were surrounded by colonials, and they were passed a note, leave the town alone or you won't escape. And Tryon had a decision to make. And there are many stories that he spared New Haven because it was too beautiful to burn. But he was a practical officer of the British Army, and he realized that, I guess I better leave the town alone. But he couldn't leave it completely alone by 4 p.m. on their exodus out of town. And you were right. The, the soldiers took freely of the, of the rum, and many of them had to be brought down to the wharf in wheelbarrows. So they, they were not about to be fighting a battle. Uh, <laughs> and so consequently, he made a wise decision, and the rear flanking units were the ones that fired the wharf, uh, setting the shipping on fire. Tryon left but not before he fired a cannonade broadside from three warships into New Haven for no other reason than spite. One of the cannonballs tore the head off a poor farmer who was out at his well trying to get some water. His actions in New Haven raised the ire of people who were on the fence about the war. 
and they decided that they did not discriminate who they were killing and burning their homes and so forth. And it really solidified the, the Patriot position substantially, particularly since they came and then their next stop was Fairfield, Connecticut, which they did burn to the ground. This could have been lost as a footnote in history or, or even less than that. How did William Campbell's name and sort of good fortune as a hero of that day come to everybody's attention? For many years, it was word of mouth. By 50 years, uh, he was pretty well forgotten, except for the legend. And there was a local historian by the name of John Warner Barber, whose job it was to go around to each town and do an historical sketch of each town. He had heard about what happened to Campbell and decided that he was so moved by what he heard from the people in Allentown that he, out of his own pocket, paid to have a headstone carved. And it simply said, Campbell, 1779. And he placed it where he was told, he, an eyewitness brought him to the grave, placed it on the grave, he actually rendered a uh, work of art of himself standing there saying a prayer over the grave. This headstone disappeared. It was decided finally in 1891 to replace it in a pretty grand way. Tell me that part of the story. A local minister in New Haven, who was the minister of the Episcopal Church, and also the Scottish American Society of New Haven, decided that they wanted to commemorate what Campbell had done. If you remember, that's not all that long after the American Civil War. Many of them regretted the fact that they left a lot of their comrades on the battlefields unidentified to be buried in unknown graves. And here they had an opportunity to identify whom they felt was a local hero, even though he fought for the British, who stood out and did something humane in a time of war that really needed to be remembered. And so they raised, as a Scottish-American club, the funds to have a monument made in memory of William Campbell. And they had two members of the Alling family donate property where he was said to have been buried. It's a fairly small plot. The stone's still there, and its message is there forever. Blessed be the merciful. Thankfully, you have documented so much of this. You've even been to England. All of Campbell's records as a British soldier are there. His records as a, uh, as a Scotsman uh, are with the Scots guards, and they guard those records a little closely. Not speaking Gaelic, I couldn't get myself into the guard museum. But lo and behold, there's a chapel in the downtown London that's known as the Guards Chapel. And the Guards Chapel has inscribed on the wall a list of members of the Scots Guards who were considered heroes of the empire. And the only name from the American Revolution inscribed on that wall is William Campbell. up this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. The town of West Haven, by the way, additionally honored William Campbell by naming one of its main thoroughfares after him. It's the one that runs north-south from the beach where Campbell came ashore right up to the West Haven Green, where he spared the life of Congregational Church Minister Noah Williston. It's called 
Campbell Avenue. Well, I want to thank my guest, Peter Melia, author of Visible Saints, The Colonial History of West Haven, 1648 to 1798. If you like the show, tell your family, friends, and colleagues and have them sign up for the podcast. Also, I do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales. And if you're interested, just drop me a line at AmazingTalesCT at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. Stay healthy.